Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For those familiar with the sort of private market space, the, a unicorn journey is a company that's valued at $1 billion. So once you get over $1 billion, that means you're quote unquote a unicorn. Uh, there are more now than there have been in the past, but it's become kind of a, a little bit of cachet to be able to say that you know, my company is now valued at a billion dollars. And when we were looking at it, you know, we we're always looking at the process required to build a business. You know, we, we don't like to invest in businesses that we don't think we can help. You know, if, if all, all we can do is provide a check, that's probably not a good fit because it's the entrepreneur should go somewhere else where they can get more help to, to scale their business than we can provide. But when we kind of put process to it, we realized that, you know, there are, there are plenty of companies nowadays that very quickly get to that billion dollar valuation, but that's not the norm. It takes a lot of time and dedication. There's a lot of work that goes on before the company even becomes a household name. And in, I think that People always want to say, oh, it's easy. I'll just hire a couple people and next thing you know, we'll be a billion dollars and we'll see where we go from there. And, and, and the idea behind the concept of the 10 year journey is that it often takes more than 10 years. If you go back in time and look at some of the successful businesses like a Google, for instance. How you day, how you day. That was the voice of Mark Flickinger. And we were discussing an area of the United States that's not really discussed when we talk about entrepreneurship, the southeastern part. Now, it's not just focused in that region. We also dive into the mind of what it's like to be a VC, an angel or an investor period. What do they look for? What is missing from a portfolio that, you know, needs to feed a, a viable economic and entrepreneurship system. So if you're someone that's one looking to get into the business, looking to raise money or looking to build and develop your team, this is an episode to definitely check out. If you know someone that could benefit from growing to, you know, from growing in an industry or an area or region that is actually entrepreneurship friendly, this is also an episode to listen to. I'm also going to leave his uh, report on what entrepreneurship is like in Southeast of uh, United States so you can see some of the opportunities for growth there. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope you check it out. Make sure you continue to use your difference to make a difference. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of As Told by Nomads, and today's guest is Mark Flickinger, and he is the Chief Operating Officer of BIP Capital, which is a venture investor uh, investor firm, which is uh, basically serving the southeastern part of the United States. They serve entrepreneurs, investors, and operators looking to grow the emerging company ecosystem. What we're going to be talking about today is how to grow and scale your company, how to lead your team for a 10-year unicorn journey, and basically how to understand the whole landscape around entrepreneurship. What, what are your you know, plan Bs, plan Cs, plan As? So welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. 
Well, the pleasure is mine. Uh, and and for background, I, I always feel like it's 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 uh, important to have a background to every guest. So before you got into you know BIP Capital, before you got into the the venture capital world, what what were the breadcrumbs that led you there? You know, who, how are you? How are you, Ansel, Hansel, and Gretel? Uh, Gretel, <laughs> uh, basically following those breadcrumbs to uh, your ultimate purpose. Sure. Yeah. Great question. And in one, I think if I were to be knowing I was following breadcrumbs when I was doing it, it wouldn't be nearly as uh, insightful as now that we've sort of gotten to where we are. I think there's always a little bit of a discovery along the journey. But, um, you know, growing up, I was involved in a lot of stuff, a lot of sports civic things. And you know, I was exposed to a lot of things from uh, from my parents, which was fortunate. But what I loved doing was always coaching and teaching. So working in environments where I could help other people, if I, whether it was around sports or tutoring. And I always loved building things. You know, I sort of always like to build, you know, jumps and ramps in the backyard and, and doing stuff as we got more advanced from a science fair perspective. And so those two sort of themes have sort of taken me through my career. I've always gravitated towards things that weren't fully baked or fully born, um, where you, you needed to spend your time figuring out how to do it and then executing against it. And I think, you know, I was in grad school, I, I, I got an MBA from uh, UNC and was fortunate enough to work with an executive coach there, a guy by the name of Keith Pegues, who helped me sort of figure out like, man, your calling all along has been uh, to, to be engaging in coaching and teaching with people. You know, he had me ask my family and close confidants, like, what did you always think Mark would be when you would grow up? And it, it, they all came back sort of as a coach. And I think the parallels of sort of building stuff from an operational perspective, and then this sort of idea of helping people do things better or sort of fulfilling their, their, fulfilling their sort of uh, potential really has come to fruition in the current role. You know, we invest in businesses that are uh, founded by phenomenal founders. They have an idea of disruption. They are going into a market to change the way things are done. And I think, you know, we would like to say working with us from, from BIP Capital, we're able to help them achieve that goal kind of farther, to go farther and achieve it faster than, than they'd be able to do it on their own. No, so I, I love that. It's like, uh, I mean, sometimes other people are able to see things in us that we're not able to see. And so when your friend was able to point that out to you, it sort of, you know, led you down this path. But can you, uh, for the audience and for people who might be wondering what venture capital is and what that means and what the difference with that is as opposed to angel investment, can you explain the ecosystem and then we'll dive into why the Southeast is a is a thriving place to uh, for companies? Sure. Yeah. So venture, there's sort of the broad bucket um, of private equity. So these are businesses that are owned privately. They're not exchanged on the private market. And then, you know, based on maturity of that business, it kind of falls into a couple of different groups. I think when if someone were to decide to become an entrepreneur and they need a little bit of funding to get their idea off the ground, they would start in the angel investing space. That's a lot of family and friends. It's usually a small amount of capital. It sort of funds the deal and gets them sort of started off the ground, gotcha. build a yeah. minimum viable product. They can kind of see if there's a market or an appetite. You know, next, in, as the company matures, when you have some revenue, that's usually where venture capital comes in. That's us. So these are businesses that typically have a, a product of some variety. They have some customers. They have some revenue, but they're not cash flow positive. You know, they're still burning. They're, they're burning money and they need 
someone to invest in them in exchange for some percentage ownership of their business for them to achieve what they're trying to achieve. And then as you go down the line from there, as the companies become more mature, you have what's called growth equity, and then you have private equity. Those are typically companies that would buy 100% of a business or a controlling stake of a businesses. And those companies are much more mature than where we invest. They're typically cash flow positive. I think what we like about the space that we invest in is you're not sort of funding an idea on the back of a napkin. You know, someone has made steps towards proving that there's a need, that their solution solves that problem. They have some people that are willing to pay for their solution. Um, and they need sort of the infrastructure, the support around them to then turn that sort of kernel of an idea into a company. And so we will invest not only money into the business to help them do that, hire talent, you know, buy things from a marketing perspective or sales fund mm -hmm. product development. We also will help deploy our team to help them make less decisions. You know, if you, if you build a hundred houses, you'll make less mistakes on the hundred house than you would on the first one. Right. And we try and take that learning or experience we have and help deploy it into the entrepreneur to say, Hey, don't do this now, do that. You know, this is a tripwire, skip it. You know, you can save your capital and you can grow faster if we do it this way. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so, I mean, thanks for that, that, you know, background. So now, you have a thing where you say you lead, you help lead teams for a 10-year unicorn journey. What does that mean? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting concept. You know, I think the the for those familiar with the the sort of private market space, the a unicorn journey is a company that's valued at one billion dollars. So once you get over one billion dollars, that means you're quote unquote a unicorn. Uh, there are more now than there have been in the past, but it's become kind of a, a little bit of cachet to be able to say that you know, my company is now valued at a billion dollars. And when we were looking at it, you know, we we're always looking at the process required to build a business. You know, we, we don't like to invest in businesses that we don't think we can help. You know, if, if all, all we can do is provide a check, that's probably not a good fit because it's the entrepreneur should go somewhere else where they can get more help to, to scale their business than we can provide. But when we kind of put process to it, we realized that, you know, there are, there are plenty of companies nowadays that very quickly get to that billion dollar valuation, but that's not the norm. It takes a lot of time and dedication. There's a lot of work that goes on before the company even becomes a household name. And in, I think that people always want to say, oh, it's easy. I'll just hire a couple people and next thing you know, we'll be a billion dollars and we'll see where we go from there. And, and, and the idea behind the concept of the 10 year journey is that it often takes more than 10 years. If you go back in time and look at some of the successful businesses like a Google, for instance, or even Microsoft, and you kind of say, how long were they around before I knew Google as I know Google today or Microsoft as I know Microsoft today? You're pushing 10 years in a lot of those scenarios. And so the thought was, how can we build a team? How can we start building a team today at the early stages of my business? I have a million in revenue, maybe two million in revenue so that I'm prepared for what's ahead, that I'm prepared for the fact that it's going to take me 10 years, there's going to be a lot of change, there'll be market dynamics, et cetera, right, right. for me to get to where I want to go. And, and that's sort of the thought behind this, the, the unicorn journey being close to a decade, we can make decisions today, we may not make it there, but at least yeah. we're set up for success if we make the right decisions today. And that's a good point. I'm always curious about that as well, because I mean, there's that stat that always is like eight or nine out of 10 companies is doomed to fail. And that always seems to, you know, deter people, scare people from even trying to start. So 
in your experience, having had the, you know, the, the vantage point of seeing many companies come to pitch to you, what do you think is the uh, mistake that many people make in the early stage that really prevents scaling and growing efficiently? Yeah, unfortunately, there are a lot of mistakes, but <laughs> well, yeah, I can imagine. And you don't realize there are mistakes until after they've happened often. But yeah. I think there's there's probably two that we, we can sort of that summarize things and that we can certainly focus on. I think the first one is you're close to solving a problem. Like we want to identify problems that need to be solved in whatever market we're going into. So whether it's a workflow problem and it's something's inefficient or you know it's in the healthcare space and I need to figure out how to get um, prior authorizations done faster. So it needs to be a problem that people feel in the market where someone is feeling a lot of pain and they're sort of not equipped to solve that problem on their own. So I think first is identifying to make sure that you're not a solution looking for a problem but you're actually a problem that's tailor-made to be, sorry, it's a solution that's tailor-made for a problem that you know is out there. And that takes time. You know, you, you may come up with an idea off the, you know, come to you when you're on a run or you're in the shower or whatever it may be, and you start working on it and you'll be close to the bullseye, but you won't be on the bullseye in terms of solving the problem. And I think the iteration required before you try to scale to make sure that you're in the bullseye is sort of the first challenge of scaling a business. Absolutely. I think the second thing that people make from a mistake is, okay, you, you get some, you, you created a solution, it solves a problem, people start to buy your solution, so you have these customers, and you sort of jump to the next step, which is, I got it. We're ready to go, let's pour fuel on the fire and let's scale this thing. And you end up investing in sales, you end up investing in marketing, you end up sort of pouring a bunch of fuel on a fire when it's really, it's the wrong fire. And, and you find that out when people go to use your product that you've sold them, maybe it's a year long contract or you know, six months or month to month, and your product doesn't deliver on the promise that you sold because it's not fully built or baked, or you haven't done the iteration required to make sure that you sort of hit the bullseye on solving the problem. And then they start to churn off your product. So now you have extra expense and from a marketing and sales perspective, because you're kind of pouring fuel on the wrong fire and your revenue is going down and you're in sort of this, uh, we could call it a death spiral if you want to, but that's not a business that anyone wants to back. You're burning more cash, your revenue is going away. So the, the, the sort of cautionary tale is let's make sure before we go down that path to grow and accelerate the business that we're, we're like ironclad, square in the middle of the bullseye, solving the problem for the, we know what the customers are, we know what the solution, the solution works for them. And then once we have that nailed, then you can scale up. And I think that in and of itself, you may pivot five, six, seven times before you feel like you're really scaling your business, but then you know you're ready to scale when you get it right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point, especially about the, the the first part about understanding the problem that you're solving. I think there's, you know, as someone who's uh, tried and launched and failed and launched successful business as well as failed businesses, um, I, I've I've identified a lot of the times the problem was me not identifying the problem or overestimating that I was the solution in, in you know in, in the problem. And sometimes when you're close to a problem, you don't see just how minuscule what your idea for the problem is. And so you have to like test it out and you have to make sure 
that you know what your hypothesis is 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 actually true and then you also have to have means of you know uh, of having systems around you with the right team that are able to either advise you or tell you when you need to adjust because sometimes uh, you can be too stubborn <laughs> and um, it can be to your benefit or to the downfall of the company. And and figuring out that difference is uh, is where advisors come into play. Yeah, I, you're not alone. I mean, I, we've done it ourselves. You know, you invest in a business and you're so close to the solution. You're like, I don't understand how this is not working. Right. And, you know, you you you're going to do customer discovery, but you're going to the wrong customers. You know, yeah. they see the world the same way you see it. And yeah. you really need to be able to sort of, uh, I like to use the word sort of humble yourself and say, let's just go see how people react to this thing, even if they hate it. And then yeah. you have a more authentic response that's like, man, I don't know what you're trying to solve. That doesn't make any sense to me. And, you know, that stings. But at least you're said, OK, well, I'm, I'm missing something. Let me dig in there and figure out what it is that I'm missing. Yeah. And, you know, it's even uh, might even be worse or sometimes might hurt your ego is when you do test it out and you find out a lot of people say, oh, yeah, this is great. I will use it. I'll use it. And then you launch it and people don't buy or react the same way you did, even though they've expressed interest. Um, and then it becomes something, you know, other things, whether it's price or uh, I don't know, I'm not ready for it now. Maybe it's the urgency isn't there or or you sort of ask the people that need it. But couldn't necessarily afford it, and right. you didn't factor that in into your research, and then um, you overestimated based on that, and then that becomes a very tricky place to be. Uh, so, yeah, we we use the you may have heard it before. We always use the analogy: Am I selling pain pills or am I selling vitamins? You know, <laughs> when you're talking to your buddies or your you know whoever your your customer set is, they're like, oh yeah, that's great. I would buy it. I would buy it. But if they're not the ones who actually hold the purse strings. It may be a vitamin, like, yeah, that make my life better, but I don't need it to survive. Yeah. And that's good. Yeah. If, if I could, if I'm selling you a pain pill where it's immediate relief from whatever the issue it is that you're having, it's much, you're much more likely to buy a pain pill than you are a vitamin. And particularly when, you know, the, the economy turns or there's a, a, a challenge within the business, if you're in there selling pain pills, you're going to be maybe not last to go, but you certainly will stick around longer than the vitamins will. That's a brilliant analogy. I love it. Okay. Well, then this begs the question. Sometimes people have a great product. I'm sure you've had people maybe come to pitch you and they probably fell flat on their floor, uh, uh, you know, they fell face down and you knew that their product was great and it was pretty effective, but they just did not communicate it enough. Have you seen like uh, common mistakes people make? Is there a, a disconnect that people have? Uh, when they're trying to communicate the benefit of their their company or their product or their service, and they're just not getting the right words out there or they're they're not positioned in the right way. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think there's two I, two sort of ideas that come to mind. Sometimes the it's a challenge when you have to sort of educate people that they have a problem mm. and educate them that you you are the solution to that problem. You know, I think people in some scenarios, we're, we work with a company that does a lot in, um, it's in the enterprise space. So they sell to enterprise customers and it's all around managing uh, sort of strategic initiatives, project management, success, but sort of at a macro level. And one of the challenges that they have is it doesn't neatly fit in a little, in a bucket. It doesn't neatly fit into 
hey, I'm being sold into developers or I'm being sold to marketing people or I'm being sold to sales and I'm a solution from a sales perspective. It's enterprise wide and it allows you to be more successful in achieving what you set out to achieve in a given year. And the, the challenge with that is that because everyone wants to be more efficient at getting work done and everyone wants to be more uh, successful with their to-do list, even if it's a strategic initiative to-do list that takes a long time to get each one accomplished. Yeah. It kind of can work for everyone. But if you go to the market and say, hey, I'm going to solve your problems, that, that doesn't resonate with anyone. And so you know, what they've had to do is really refine their go-to-market strategy to make sure that they're going after in one scenario, people that are in more of a project management capacity and another place, you know, within a specific industry. And then we're building another marketing and sales cadence for someone in the healthcare space around uh, hospital execution. And then in another one, we're working in a utility channel. So, you know, that they've been at it for a while and that's sort of easy to say in hindsight. But if, if you kind of go out with a story that is supposed to resonate with everyone it resonates with no one and that's been a real learning where you end up having 10 or 12 different playbooks depending on who you're talking to that to make sure that the solution resonates with that person and then i mean i'll I'll just there's another one that i think is really interesting we invested in a business in the telemedicine health so you know in the state of georgia it was where we're based here in atlanta state of georgia was one of the worst places to have a stroke and one of the reasons was there aren't a lot of um, specialists that could treat stroke. One of the doctors here became entrepreneur and recognized I could build a software solution, telemedicine, so that I didn't have to physically be there as a specialist to administer the appropriate dose of drugs, the proper care, et cetera, for the, for the patient to survive the stroke or increase their chances of surviving the stroke. So you developed this software solution that sort of allowed rural hospitals to connect with a specialist and save people's lives. Great, great solution. I mean, solution, problem, taking care of it all. And um, they built a product that started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. started to resonate work, and it worked. You know, we've saved thousands, if not tens of thousands of people's lives here in the state of Georgia, and they've now moved more nationally. The challenge with that was not around the product or the marketing of the product, but staffing the product became really challenging. You know, we have a shortage of specialists and medical professionals in certain fields around the country. 
And just because we could save people's lives didn't, I mean, didn't necessarily mean we had enough people to staff the product 24, 7, 365 days a year. And so the go-to-market strategy, or at least what we missed there, was not necessarily the solution because the solution worked, but just the workflow of how people were operating in that environment. It was so disruptive that suddenly, even though we were saving people's lives, we couldn't get it deployed in a way that um, we were able to have it staffed and therefore people could you know, save, save people from the stroke perspective. So you know, there's a couple of different ways that you can make missteps along the way. And they're not all like product market fit. Some of them are just sort of the workflow around how your product is deployed or accepted in the market. I think that company will end up being really successful, uh, but it, it needed to move into a broader or a larger platform than one that we were able to provide when, so we, we sold that business. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now I mean, and, and thanks for using those examples. I think it definitely helps paint the picture. And because a lot of times when you think about entrepreneurship, you don't really have an idea of the intricacies. You just think of it as this, um, bigger than, um, than life concept. And sometimes we forget, I know I've forgotten in the past that there are many intricacies that need to be paid attention to. I was reading uh, an interview that you had done and you said, uh, no leader can build a successful business alone. And, but creating a team that's forward thinking, adaptable, engaged, and unified under the company vision will help ensure that the, the business thrives no matter what world, what the world throws at it. And, you know, if you put that in context to your 10 year unicorn journey, you're really, you're talking about the idea of making sure you have a sound structure that is able to deal with um, the many unpredictable, uh, unpredictable things that entrepreneurship could throw at you. And so that, that, that means having sound vision, but also having um, a dynamic team. Yeah. So, you know, when I started here at BIB Capital, been here for three and a half, four years, we would sit in these partner meetings and, you know, the, the discussion or the challenge we'd have with our portfolio companies was more around not the product or how we would scale the product or go to the market, but it was more around the talent required in that business. We'd say, hey, you know, we have a, a founder here or a leader here, but he's not the leader to take us to the next step. And how can we do something about that? And, you know, I, I, I like to focus on things that we can control. And this is a little bit of a stretch, but we can help control sort of who the business employs and, and who who's on the field to help us tackle these challenges that are in front of us. And so we really dedicated bandwidth on our team to making sure that, you know, kind of going back to this teaching and coaching, how can we help them make better hiring decisions for, for what's ahead that they don't even know about? How can we make sure that we make timely hiring decisions? You know, as a, as an entrepreneur, you're head down in the trenches trying to get to your next sale you're trying to get to your next sort of product development, you're not necessarily thinking, oh, in three months, I'm going to need someone to run marketing. And so how could we help them sort of come put their head up, make sure that we were keeping a focus on everything that was going, going on in the business so that they were prepared for the future and, and dedicated that sort of aspect of our platform within VIP Capital to help them make these sort of better hiring decisions. And so, you know, what you're talking about from a unicorn perspective, when we wrote that piece or when I wrote that piece, it was sort of like, what have we learned over the time that we've spent with our portfolio companies? Over the past couple of years, we've put more than 50 people. We've helped sort of place more than 50 people into our portfolio companies. It's roughly two, two employees per company. And each time we've done that, we've learned something. But we also, each time we've done that, that company has sort of turned up and has had more success. Right. So, 
you know, I think you, you touched on them, but I think, you know, make your hiring decisions wisely. You don't, you don't put some budget together at the beginning of the year and say, Hey, I'm going to hire eight people and then just blindly hire eight people. You have to react to how the business responds. You may end up hiring 10 people. You may have hiring four people, yeah. but be thoughtful about when we retire based on the needs of the business, not on some, you know, structure that we architected without the knowledge we have today. Yeah. I think yeah. the flexibility of the person is really important. You know, we're not necessarily looking for someone that's done it before. We're looking for someone that's done a whole host of different things and has been successful in all those different environments. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, no, I 100% agree. And so, you know, what it's making hiring decisions wisely, you know, finding adaptable people is key because uh, I've found that with most of the people that I work with, you know, and I work with a lot of fast growing startups, the the number one problem comes down to talent or how talent is managed or how talent feels about whatever the company values are. Whether it's with Uber in the last year or or other type of tech companies, it's always around how are you handling or managing talent uh, efficiently or inefficiently. So, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I think it, that. And then I think it's also the, 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 the bench that you need to create. You know, we're, we're always thinking that if you have really top talents, we're always trying to find A-plus talent. If we can find A-plus talent, there's a good chance that over the course of 10 years, we're not going to keep all of it. You know, you'll right. be able to keep some of it in your organization. And so let's make sure that we're planned for that. Let's sort of develop a deep bench. Let's develop, let's hire people in that can be your leaders in the future. And they can become sort of the next A-plus talent that's leading some aspect or some portion of your organization. I think if you only hire one level and you don't allow yourself to develop, it's really hard to maintain that over a period of time to be successful. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I agree. Did you, sorry, did you want to say something else? No. I'm curious about the, uh, the Southeastern part of the United States. Cause when we hear about entrepreneurship, we hear mostly Silicon Valley. I'm in New York. Sometimes you hear Silicon Alley, <laughs> uh, the, the New York city, but, what is the entrepreneurship landscape like in, in Georgia, where, where you are right now, and generally the southeastern area of the United States? Yeah, it's, it's, it's strong. And, you know, I think people would call it a second or third tier innovation hub. I think Atlanta now in, in and of itself is kind of, we'll call it top 10, top five in terms of innovation centers. I think a lot of that has to do with the investment that governor has made here in Atlanta to help fund, you know, accelerators, incubators, et cetera. But, you know, we've, we've sort of studied what, what does it take to be a successful business? And then where can we look for areas where most of those ingredients are in place and how can we kind of provide the missing link? So to, there's gotta be talent obviously. So, you know, Atlanta to use that as an example, there's a lot of fortune 500 companies here been very successful. You got Home Depot, you have Delta, UPS, um, Mercedes-Benz has a North American headquarters here, and you can kind of go down the line of, of Invesco's and um, National Cash Register. So there's, there's talent here, operating talent that's built and scaled and worked in businesses. There's a lot of academic talent where research is being done and patents are being done. And there's also a lot of this sort of infrastructure I referenced before with the incubators and accelerators. You know, you have some place for people to start businesses, you know, an, an actual physical space where people can go and start businesses and work with like-minded individuals and, and kind of take the kernel of an idea and turn it into a business. 
And then I think the, the last piece or, or the missing piece there then becomes capital. How do I have enough capital to achieve what I'm trying to achieve in scale my business? And, you know, what the West Coast or Boston or New York has is kind of all of those ingredients, including the capital piece. Right. And I think the challenge as an investor in those markets is then there's sort of it's a bit frothy. You know, in order to get your money to work, you have to be really competitive and you have to have potentially higher valuations and you have to move really fast. And that works. That's a great environment. I think what we like about the Southeast is the ability for us to have all those different ingredients. And there isn't quite as much competition from a capital perspective, although that is picking up. And so we're able to make investments into businesses. I don't want to, it's not a slower pace, but we're able to sort of give the company what they need based on the stage of where the company is. You know, if they're a million dollar revenue company, they don't necessarily need $50 million. You can say, hey, to achieve your next milestone, you need $2 million. And then as they achieve that milestone, you can follow on with another round of capital, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's beneficial both for the entrepreneur and for the investor. You know, from an entrepreneur's perspective, you're diluting yourself less because it's a, taking less capital at a lower valuation than you would as you achieve more success. You, you can take capital at a higher valuation and you're sort of selling a smaller percentage of your business. I think from an investor's perspective, you're able to deploy less capital up front to, to make sure that you, the, the company you think you're investing is the company that you're actually investing in. Yeah. And, and then, uh, so it's a nice, we're both sides of the equation win. And, you know, we've found a fair amount of success. What we started to do in the Southeast, Southeastern United States, is a lot of the success we've had in the 10 plus years we've been here in Atlanta we're now starting to see in these other sort of second and third tier innovation cities around the Southeast and Midwest where there's great companies being built. They're just a little bit under the radar right now. And there's, and you know, with our early investment mentality, there's a lot of help or support we can provide for these companies to achieve success. That's, that's very important. That's very important, especially that you're finding a lot of these type of companies who might, like you say, go on the radar. Um, Okay, so now I'm curious about BIP Capital because what you just told me was I, I love the fact that you exist in in such a market where people can be nurtured and 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 grow. But what does your portfolio look like? What does BIP Capital look for when investing? Yeah, sure. So we we kind of break that down into three buckets. So one I talked about already. That's the sort of geographic footprint. You know, we're very operationally involved. We're based in Atlanta. We like to be able to get to our portfolio companies to to help them. If we have to get on a plane and fly and lose a day traveling, we don't necessarily we wouldn't necessarily invest just because we don't feel like we can bring as much value. Right. Um, so there's that sort of the geographic piece, which I already touched on. I touched a little bit earlier earlier on when we were chatting about sort of the maturity of company and where we invest. We're, we're first institutional capital, so sort of Series A investors. We um, we love to take promising teams, ideas, products in their early stages and help them then sort of scale their business. So I touched on that as well. But then the sort of types of company, which is probably the most important part for the question that you're asking is, we best in B2B businesses. So that's stuff that we know and we do well. So, as a, so that's business to business as opposed to business to consumer. And we also invest in software businesses only. 
you know, we've, we've made some investments in hardware before, and we made some investments in business to consumer. The team here, and, and frankly, the, the city itself is, is not set up in terms of the operators, the skill set, the ideas, the technology to do those investments. And so we've sort of built ourselves around B2B businesses in the software space. And then they're in areas where we have deep domain expertise. So we do a ton in the healthcare space. We probably do 40 to 50% of our investing in healthcare IT or software solutions to help solve healthcare issues. We do a fair amount in enterprise SaaS. So B2B software as a service businesses that help workflows and efficiency across large organizations. We do some in the digital media and marketing technology space. And then the last one I would say, um, and there are always exceptions to every rule, but the last one we do is we do a lot in what's called the DevOps or the sort of picks and shovels around software development and knowing that there's just more and more software being built to help our society as a whole, although sometimes it doesn't help us as much as we'd like. Uh, the, the tools around more efficiently building software is a, a really interesting space right now where we've made a couple of investments. Okay. No, I love that. I love that. And I'll definitely put that in the show notes. I think those those are uh, industries that are definitely needed, in, especially given what you said about uh, the Atlanta and Georgia market when you're talking about sometimes uh, the healthcare there where some people might not focus on some of the important things that li- like they invest in in companies that are trying to solve that problem. So that's, uh, that's very instrumental for growth in, in general for humanity. So I love that. Now, I had a question for you before, and I was thinking about this one. I was watching, uh, I think it was, yeah, it was Gary Vee that popped up on my uh, my Instagram feed. Now, a lot of times people say people like Gary Vee have popularized the concept of entrepreneurship and sort of made it cool. Now, you know, millennials and Gen Zers, you know, my generation and younger are looking as that as a viable option. What do you say to that? Are you someone that loves seeing personalities talk about entrepreneurship or do you um, scoff at the concept of people sort of taking you behind the scenes as you know into how they build their business and using social media to uh, educate people I, I, I think it depends on who the person is I mean my, my personal opinion is I think it's great for people to know around entrepreneurship and what they're signing up for and how to build yeah. businesses. I mean, I, th- I think the barriers to start a business today are much less than they used, than they were yesterday or even, you know, a year ago or two years ago. Right. I mean, with the ability to, to start a business and use the cloud from a commuting perspective, I mean, you can build businesses from a computer in your home that have a, f- a tremendous amount of revenue. And you just weren't able to do that in the past. And so I think there is an excitement around working for an entrepreneurship. I know some of the larger, more established companies in the country are really in a war for talent because so many people coming out of college, the, the millennials and Gen Zers, as you mentioned, they want to work for a startup. They, they want to work for a company that is not yet changed the world, but has the potential to do so. And I think that's great. I think the mistake people would make is not knowing what they're signing up for. You know, I think signing up for something just because someone's told you it's cool or it looks like fun on Instagram is is probably not a good decision, like a rubric to use to make a decision. Right. So people can gain more insider information about what it takes before actually making that decision, then great. You know, it's it's a lot of hard work to to sort of disrupt something that's already been established. Yeah. And 
that's great. That doesn't mean you should shy away from it or it doesn't mean that someone should should or should not do it. But let's make sure that A, you know what you're getting into, at least at some level. And then B, you're really passionate about what you're doing. Yeah. And I think um, passion will get you a long way in, in, in knowing sort of what you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it just fulfills you much more in whatever your professional or personal endeavors are. And uh, there's no right or wrong reason there as long as you're just kind of doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. And to be fair, uh, Gary does, you know, say that and he always is always straight up about the fact that this is not if you're trying to get this for like, uh, you know, quick results, you're, you're in the wrong business and you have to be yeah. patient. So, um, yeah, no, I, I like that people are able to see behind the scenes that it's not just, you know, an overnight success as, as many people like to paint it as sometimes. So, yeah, I like that transparency. Uh, wh- where can people find out more about your company and how can they reach out to you? Yeah, so bipcapital.com is where we are from a website perspective. You know, we, we are both interested in people who are learning more about the space. Happy to share with them and educate in that perspective, either as an investor or potentially going in as an entrepreneur. Uh, also looking for the next promising companies. And then on LinkedIn, you know, Mark Flickinger, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, COO of BIP Capital, just so you know you have the right Mark Flickinger. Uh, happy to reach out. Would love to connect with people and and see if I can help kind of coach or teach to continue the theme uh, from the beginning of the podcast. Absolutely. And thank you for that. I'll also be sure to include um, BIP's state of startups in the Southeast. They have a, a report that they, they do annually. And I'll, I'll put a link for that so you can check it out, especially if you're in the area and you're thinking of, you know, building a business. It might be something worthwhile. So I'll put that in the show notes for you. So uh, uh, before we wrap up, I always uh, reframe my mission statement as a question to the guests. So my mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. It is what everything you know that I do is is, is built on. Uh, I believe that we all have something unique in us that can celebrate uh, differences, but also make an impact. So how do you use your difference to make a difference? Yeah, I... I think that's, I mean, I love your mission statement because it's so true. Everyone has their own unique way to, to, to come to this world. And if you don't exploit your difference for the good, then, then what are you doing? Thank you so, so much. I think my difference is really kind of what I touched on early on. And it, you know, I was later in my life when I sort of realized that one of my callings was just making sure that whether I'm good or bad at teaching and coaching, that's sort of where I, I can have the most impact. You know, I may not be the guy that's going to invent the next company that will change the world, but I do think I'm in a unique position to help whoever comes up with that idea, optimize that idea for success. Mm. So, you know, being in the position I am now, I get to, to work with a lot of really talented, interesting, dynamic individuals. And if I can help them get, you know, one step closer, 10 steps closer to sort of maximizing their potential, then I think I'm using what differentiates me from others to, to make a difference in the world. You know, we may create the next solution to make it so that the success rate for stroke goes down, to use an example from earlier. And yeah. uh, that's really fulfilling from my perspective and uh, kind of look forward to continuing to press on that to see how else we can make a difference. No, I love that. I love that. And thank you so much for, for saying that. Uh, so I love the fact that you're using your difference to spark uh, companies and people to go out ultimately and even, you know, fulfill their purposes by, you know, whether it's funding or giving them the tools to be able to to make a larger impact in the world. So that's that's phenomenal. Great. Well, thank you. 
Thank you. The pleasure is mine. And ladies and gentlemen, until next time, use a difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.